this second Sunday of Advent. It is good to be here with you this morning. And as you all know, we have continued to work our way through the New Testament. And now we are getting to passages and books that uh, we tend to not focus on probably typically quite as much, uh, especially not as much as the Gospels or some of Paul's epistles. Uh, but today we are going to look at First Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. And so I invite you to hear these words. Peter writes this, The end of all things is near. Therefore, be serious and discipline yourselves for the sake of your prayers. Above all, maintain constant love for one another, for love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaining. Like good stewards of the manifold grace of God, serve one another and with whatever gift each of you have received. Whoever speaks must do so as one speaking the very words of God. Whoever serves must do so with the strength that God supplies, so that God may be glorified in all things through Jesus Christ. To him belong the glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. God, on this second Sunday of Advent, we come to you waiting with expectancy. Waiting to hear from you. Waiting to experience you. Waiting to see you. So we pray that you would give us the eyes, the hearts, the minds. That we might see as you see. And I pray that the words of my mouth, the meditation of all of our hearts, will be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen and amen. So one of the things I find that we have to do every Advent for those of us uh, here uh, in America and the church is to remind folks uh, that Advent is certainly about celebrating the fact that Jesus came 2,000 years ago. Um, but also that Jesus is going to come again. One of the things that happens, of course, is that we tend to focus uh, much more on uh, Advent as just what the fact that Jesus came 2,000 years ago, and we tend to not always uh, focus as much on what's very clear in Scripture is important, which is that reminder that Jesus is going to return one day. When I, was, uh, when I was growing up in the church, uh, we, I was always a part of a church, it seemed, that would talk about Jesus' return with some regularity. It was always very real in my mind, right? Which is why, as I've shared before, sometimes I would come home uh, from school, and if there was nobody there, I would have this great fear in me, right? That Jesus had returned, uh, and that I was far too sinful, and therefore I had been left behind. And, and so I would sit there in panic and angst, and I would confess my sins 
again and again. And then I would hear the door open, and I would be like, oh, and it would be my sister, right? And I knew that that gave me no sense of peace because she was even more sinful than me. And so then we, I would just sit there in even more angst until finally my mother would arrive. And I always knew that when my mother was there, she was a saint. So surely Jesus would not have come and left her. But what it caused me to do, though, is whenever I thought about the end of times, whenever I thought about Jesus' return, and oftentimes, perhaps, whenever we hear folks talking about it and the way that they talk about it, it oftentimes has this scary tinge to it, this kind of fearful hue, if you will. But N.T. Wright points out that a majority of the time when Jesus' return is brought up in Scripture, it's actually something to celebrate. It's actually something for which we should be full of joy and excited. Why is that? Well, for one, it means that with God, with Jesus returning, there's a sense of justice finally uh, being here. There's a sense that there will be no more tears when those things that are wrong will finally be made right. And so we should be looking forward to that. But then also, of course, as followers of Christ, we believe that the judge, Jesus, who is coming, is, going to be, is one who is full of grace and love. It's the same Jesus who, who did come before, the same one who came and who, who died for us and who was raised for us and who loves us. So it should be something, of course, with which we are excited. We believe in a graceful God. We believe in a love-filled Jesus Christ, and so we should be looking forward to it. Now that said, we should also, of course, be fully aware of the fact that 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 does also mean when the judgment comes that our lives will be examined. And that that's something that we need to keep in mind. Not so much so that we can then look at that with some kind of great angst. No, for those of us who follow Jesus, who believe in his grace and his love, I don't think it should give us angst, but it should give us clarity. It should force, force us to ask and to examine our own lives and say, how are we living? If Jesus is returning and bringing his kingdom, then how are we living now in such a way that is already beginning to build for that kingdom? I think that's what Peter's getting at here uh, in this passage when he says the end is near. So therefore, we should be serious and discipline ourselves for the sake of our Prayers. Now that word that the NRSV uses for serious, because the end is near, because Jesus is returning, that we should be serious, is probably better translated as clear-minded or as sane. If you know uh, the Gospel of Mark, you might remember uh, when Jesus uh, is approached by the demoniac, right? Here's someone who, who is clearly not in, a, not in his right mind. Things are not going well for him. And Jesus heals the demoniac. And after that, when Mark begins to describe the demoniac who has now been healed, he says that the demoniac is now, he uses this exact same Greek word, is now clear-minded. That the, the demoniac now is sane if you will. So what's kind of interesting then, that commentators point out, is, is, is when you see someone who is yelling that the end of knee is near, whenever you see someone who's talking about the end is near, almost all of us, our initial thought is, this person is probably not quite right. This person might be slightly off. And, and it might be the case. But what Peter is suggesting, and what I think we should remember 
is that it could also equally be the case that if you never think about how the end is near, whether that's Jesus' return or, quite frankly, your own death, that to never consider those things is also to be out of your mind. Is to almost act insanely if you are not asking the question or if you are not saying, if the end is near, how should I be living my life right now? I was thinking about this, it was, uh, reminded me, you know, I said this several weeks ago that when my wife and I met that we had basically six figures of student loan debt. And for about the first 12 years, 10, 12 years of our marriage, we, we, um, we had no clarity about there being any kind of end goal. We wanted to act like it, that was just never going to happen. We wanted to just kind of push that back, right? Oh, forget it. And so that meant that we just kind of kept living our lives. We just kept spending money. And, and we would always, from time to time, we would feel the weight of that. But we didn't really think about the end, if you will, that that was even a possibility, which, which means we just kind of kept living our lives, right? Kept going on trips, kept eating out, and we, you know, and, and again, we would feel the weight of it, but we just thought, oh, we just didn't want to think about it. Until finally one day, when we finally said, wait a second, we have got to get rid of this debt. And all of a sudden, when we began to see the end, when the end became clearer, then we began to change how we were living our lives right then, in the present. As soon as the goal, as soon as the end became clear, then we began, it began to give us clarity about how we were living right now. And if we, as we've been saying several times, want to kind of lift up 1 Timothy and take hold of life that really is life, the only way to begin doing that is to know what is coming in the end. What is the goal? The goal is for Jesus to return. The goal is to understand if that's the case, if this is what the kingdom of God looks like, then how are we living right now to help build for that coming kingdom? So Peter says, the end is near. Focus on that. Understand that. Be serious. Be sane about that. And it will begin to change how you live your life today. So what does Peter say? What's that change? What would change? What would it look like? Well, Peter says that you need to constantly, above all, he says, maintain constant love. Now, that's pretty self-explanatory, I suppose. Okay, we should love. Oh, that's great. We love that, right? We should love. You know what we need? We need more love, right? And that's something that all of us could kind of agree to, right? Oh, yeah, we love love. This world needs more love. That's so good. We should love. And if I ended the sermon right there, right, you guys would walk out and you'd be like, oh, that's so great. The donut's great. I love the donut. Things, everything. I just love it. And we'd go home and we'd we'd go to bed and we'd sleep well and everything would be great. And the reason for that, it seems to me, is because it's so general, this love, that it doesn't actually mean anything. It doesn't actually cost anything. You see, when you live in a life of kind of this just, just gen, generic or general kind of generalities, I should say, there's no real sense of what it means, right? So let me go back to this example again. Whenever Megan and I thought, oh, you know, we want, we want to be out of debt. We don't want to owe that. I was like, yeah, out of debt. That's awesome. Okay, that means why well, we can't eat out anymore. Oh, 
Well, that's no good. We can't go on vacation. Oh, no, nobody. That's dumb. Right? I wasn't able to do this and that. All of a sudden, you know, no Starbucks coffees, none of those things. As soon as this kind of cool, no debt, all of a sudden became specific to what it was going to cost us. All of a sudden, it became real and was, quite frankly, much more difficult. So when Peter says, hey, man, we got to love He doesn't keep it there. He doesn't just say, hey, we got to love. No, no, no. We know that Peter means more than just this generic and general love. Because how do we know that? Well, first of all, we know it. Because Peter says, maintain constant love. Right? Or the NIV says, deep love. Love, But again, to go back to the Greek, I'm kind of like Stan Johnson today with the Greek that I'm using. But to go back to the Greek, what it literally says here is a love that stretches. A love that strains. In other words, this is a love that is not just kind of generic. It is a love that is costly, that is difficult to have, that does not come naturally for any of us. And why, why is it difficult? Why is it a love that has to stretch? Well, because Peter says, don't just kind of love. Peter says, have a love that stretches and you have to have it toward one another. In other words, in this particular context, when Peter is speaking to this church, what he is saying is, you need to love your brothers and sisters in Christ. You need to love those who are inside of your church community. And that is much more difficult than just love. Because church folk are not Always easy to love. You can say amen to that. I think it's important for us to kind of address that reality that the only reason that Peter says you have to have a love that stretches is because Peter knows that it is not always easy to love your sisters and brothers in Christ. We're not always easy folks to love. And you could say, well, you know, that really shouldn't be the case. We should be a community full of love and grace and justice and peace and gentleness and patience and and kindness and all of those great things. In fact, of course, you know, as we talk about, uh, we're oftentimes criticized those in the church from the outside world. They say, oh, we love Jesus. Jesus is fine, but that church stinks. We don't like the church. It's full of hypocrites. They're the worst. And so we find ourselves oftentimes trying to defend it or almost perhaps even trying to hide it. Well, you know, they're really not that bad. And we we come up with all these things. We think, well, yeah, you know what? It really should be better. But the question, as I was thinking about this this week, that I kept wrestling with this, is, is, is should the church actually be better? Should we actually be a place where people from the outside look at us and and see this community that is only full of love and grace and and justice and gentleness? Is that actually what we should look like? I realize it may be a strange question for me to ask, but I'm struck by people like Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, we've talked about this book together, or book before, his book Life Together. The session's actually reading it right now. And 
He looks at the church and he realizes that there are those who think that the church should be this kind of utopia of love and grace. This place full of sugar plums and fairies, right? This just candy canes, all of this wonderful thing. He says, oh, yes. But Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a pastor, said, no. That's not really, is it? In fact, he said, as soon as you begin to realize that it's not a place like that, that is a grace of God. Here, here is exactly what Bonhoeffer says right here. He says, says, by sheer grace, God will not permit us to live even for a brief period in a dream world. He does not abandon us to those rapturous experiences and lofty moods that come over us like a dream. Only that fellowship, right, that church which faces such disillusionment, the disillusionment between what Jesus calls us to and what we actually are, with all of its unhappy and ugly aspects, begins to be what it should be in God's sight, begins to grasp in faith the promise that is given to it. In other words, what Bonhoeffer seems to be saying is not only is this not what the church should be, but we really, oh, I'm sorry, the sooner the shock, this is a really long quote. The sooner the shock of disillusionment comes to an individual and to a community, the better for both. So again, what Bonhoeffer is saying is, not only should this not, is this not the way it is, but we probably shouldn't try to take too much time and energy trying to act like it is, or even perhaps trying to get there. We should just understand it's not going to look like that. Now again, this is kind of strange. Why would that be the case? Well, I kept kind of thinking through this. And then more recently, I was reading another book by Eugene Peterson. I love Eugene Peterson, and it's a book that his EPC are recommended that I haven't read on the life of David. By the way, uh, we're going to be looking at the life of David uh, coming up in this next year. And it's called Leap Over a Wall. And in that, uh, he begins to describe the life of David. In this one particular part of the book, uh, David is in the wilderness, and he's on the run from King Saul. King Saul wants to kill him, and, and David is not yet king. And so he's, he's in the wilderness, and as he's in the wilderness, he, he kind of develops this kind of ragtag following, right, of, of warriors. And, and these ragtag followers, as Peterson describes them, are distressed, they're indebted, and they're discontented. They're distressed, they're indebted, and they're discontented. And as Peterson points out, that's actually the kind of people whom God, more often than not, calls to be his disciples. In fact, he goes on to say that, isn't that still the case today? Isn't that the case in the church? He says, just think about it like this. People, they walk in because they want to experience God. And oftentimes they walk in and they're surrounded by fractious gossips. Or maybe they read scripture during the week and they're, they're, they, wanna, they, they think maybe I should follow this Jesus. And they read it and, and they love the words, come to me all you who are weary and heavy burdened and I will give you rest. And they say, that's exactly what I want. And, and then they come in on a particular Sunday and they sit down and they're raked over the coals by the preacher behind the pulpit because he or she is upset about the fact that, uh, that they haven't gotten on the mission bandwagon, that they're not doing enough. And so they walk out feeling even less than they were when they came in. Or, or that, they, uh, that they sit there and they see on the church sign, taste and see that the Lord is good. And they say, oh, I would love that. And they come in and, and they've not been here very long before they've already been signed up to, to begin to serve in the nursery. And they don't even like kids all that much. 
And I think, wait, this is, where's this disconnect? It's all these lofty words, but then you got the reality of the church. But again, Eugene Peterson says here, I feel no need to apologize for that. He goes on to say, I feel no need to try to, to, try to help our image, to try to make ourselves look better. And then I love how he ends this chapter. Because he ends it just like this. Here's what he says. He says, every time I move to a new community, I find a church close by and join it. Committing myself to worship and work with that company of God's people. And I've never been anything other than disappointed. Everyone turns out to be biblical through and through. Murmurers, complainers, the faithless, the inconstant, those plagued with doubts and riddled with sin, boring moralizers, glamorous secularizers. So what are we doing? Why am I standing up here talking about how difficult it is to love you and to love me? This is not very good advertising. Shouldn't we kind of just say this behind very closed doors, under hushed tones, so that nobody outside would ever know until they were too far in here just how much of a struggle we are to love? Just how much, if they're really going to love us, it is going to take an immense amount of stretching? Shouldn't we be working on our public image? I suppose we could, but here's the thing. Have you thought about who it was who wrote this letter? It was Peter. You remember Peter, right? You see, Peter was the one who was always putting his foot in his mouth. Peter was the one whom Jesus called Satan. Peter was the one who denied Jesus not once, not twice, not three times... And remember, every time that Peter did those things, it was after, after he had met Jesus, after he had known that he was loved by God, after, after he began to love Jesus, after he began to follow Jesus, after he was a part of the disciples, with brothers and sisters in Christ, after he was a part of the church. After all those things, and it still took a lot of stretching to love Peter. Why is Peter not apologizing for the church? Why is Dietrich Bonhoeffer and Eugene Peterson not apologizing for the church? Because they know that if the church is supposed to be this perfect place, that they would never be able to be a part of it. Why does Peter say we need to stretch our love for others? Because he knows that he, in order to be loved, it is going to take a lot of stretching. How many of us know people like Peter who are not easy to love? You see, what Peter recognized was that what was remarkable about the church is not that it was full of impeccable people, who followed Jesus well, who loved God and others perfectly, who always turn the other cheek. What makes the church remarkable is that it is actually full of real human beings who struggle and doubt 
and have fears and anxieties and are dishonest and imperfections. And yet, God keeps loving them and forgiving them. What makes the church remarkable, Peter understands, is not the church at all. What makes the church remarkable is God. It's why Peter says to God and God alone does all of the glory belong. What makes the church remarkable is not the church So that when others look at the church and they begin to condemn it and they say, oh, you're full of hypocrites and all those things, we should really spend very little time trying to defend it and just say, I know. And yet, God still loves us and is still full of grace. So then why... Why does Peter say that we should stretch our love? Why does Peter say that we should be hospitable, as he says in this passage? Why does Peter say that we should then also serve one another? Well, it's not, because if we do so, then we will become the perfect church members and we will impress others. Now, I'm convinced that the reason why we do those things is because in those very acts of loving in a way that stretches us and being hospitable and serving one another, in those moments when we do those things, we begin to see others as Jesus sees them. In other words, being church is not first and foremost about making sure that people will see us in a particular way. Rather, being church is about learning, about serving in such a way that we begin to see others in a particular way. That we begin to see others through the lens of Christ. I've shared probably before about a particular parishioner I had at a previous congregation. He, um, from from about the first month, I realized that that he and I were not going to get along. He he didn't like the way that I preached. Uh, He didn't like the way that I chose songs. At that church, I was the one who chose the songs. He didn't like the way that I led meetings. He, He really just, he didn't like me. And, and he wasn't afraid for me to know it, and he wasn't afraid to let others know of, his, uh, of how much he didn't really like me. And, and from my perspective, you know, he was just a malcontent and, and someone who didn't, must not have had a, a happy family life and was doing everything he could to make sure that I didn't have a happy family life. And my guess is, though I never really asked him, but you can kind of tell, that what he didn't like about me was that I was some young, brash pastor who always acted as if I knew what I was doing and, and what I was saying, even though I didn't. And I'm sure that there was much truth to that. And so for years, year after year after year, we were constantly going at one another. And then one day, I got a phone call. They said, hey, this particular guy, he's in the hospital. We'd, uh, we'd really love for you to come and see him. 
Well, because I'm a real person, I wasn't very excited about that. In fact, the whole drive there to the hospital, you know what I was doing. I was going over everything that he had ever said to me that I didn't like. Everything he had ever done to me that I didn't like. And every single mile, I could feel that love stretching to where it got a bit like gum. You know how gum can get when you keep stretching and you think there's no way. At some point, it's just going to snap. And sure enough, the longer I got, the thinner that that love became. The more I kept rehearsing, the thinner and thinner it came. And I finally got to the hospital. It was holding on, but not by much. And then I walked into the hospital room. And there he was. Tubes, of course, were everywhere. Machines were beeping. Oxygen was being pumped through his nose. And I looked at him. And all the facades had kind of fallen by the wayside. And I saw him in his weakness and his vulnerability the image that comes to my mind is almost like a turtle who was outside of his shell. And I saw him in that moment differently than I had ever seen him before. I didn't see him as just some angry person who was constantly causing me grief and giving me anxiety and making me angry and ruining my days and In that state, I'm convinced that I saw him probably for the first time just as a glimpse, as a child of God. Not perfect, afraid, but in that vulnerability, I saw him I'm convinced through the same lens that Jesus saw him. And I never asked him, but my guess is probably for the first time he saw me perhaps much more like Jesus saw me. Not as some kind of you know, young pastor who, uh, you know, who was always afraid and who was uh, you know, overconfident, if not arrogant in some ways. But he saw me as someone who actually cared for him in that moment. As someone who was there to pray for him and who was genuinely concerned about him. In that moment, at a time when I thought his end was probably near, I saw him as a fellow brother in Christ. Now, this isn't a fairy tale. This is the real church. And in that case, what this means is that actually he didn't end up dying right then. No, he rallied. And when he came back to the church, he and I were still mad at each other a lot. We still had disagreements. We still had squabbles. We still caused each other some angst. But all of that being said... I still never forgot what he looked like in that moment. 
And because of that, even though all of these other things were still the case, because this is the real world, this is church, this is, this is exactly how it goes, in the midst of that, I still saw as if one piece of that facade had come off, and I could still see in there. And every once in a while, much more than I ever had before, I could actually see him, not as I saw him, but as Jesus saw him, in that midst of that stretching love, in the midst of the welcome, and in the midst of the serving, I was able to see him differently. See, the church is not making sure that others see us differently. It is us making sure that we begin to see others differently. And when we begin to be humble, when we begin to stretch our love, when we become hospitable, when we begin to serve, we begin to see them differently. This week, as Elia said in his prayer, has been a tough week at ZPC. Nanette passed away, and we had her funeral yesterday. Nanette was somebody, as she described herself, somebody who had lived many years, a life full of joy and blessings. But then Thursday and Friday, we were a place where many came, hundreds, probably over a thousand if I had to guess, who came through in order to grieve the loss of a 19-year-old, Tate, who passed away far, far too young. He wasn't a ZPCer. Uh, he had gone through awakening here, but he was a Lutheran. And, 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 but, but they realized how large the church was going to, or how large uh, the funeral was going to be in the viewing. They decided, to, or they asked if we could have it here, and we did. And that was a difficult time. When we had the funeral, this place was packed. We had it, people in the chapel and in the gathering space. But Christ was here. Christ was here in the scripture that was read. Christ was here in the songs that were sung. Christ was here in the testimonies uh, given about, about Tate and his life and what he had meant to so many. But I also just want to take a moment to say that I also saw Christ throughout all of that time in the ways that so many here at ZPC stretched their love at that time for many who didn't even know him. The way that the staff and the way that the, uh, uh, that the deacons and, and that so many ZPCers opened up and welcomed and were hospitable and in the midst of that, I received so many comments about people who were so thankful for us doing that. Surely, I mean, we wouldn't have done anything else, quite frankly. But what I want you to know, what I want you to hear from me, are that those acts of stretching love, of hospitality, of service, that in those acts, people experienced Jesus. And in those acts, I want you to know that as I watched and saw so many of you caring and loving, I saw Jesus through those very acts. And it was an incredible amidst all of the brokenness of that time. It was a blessing in the midst of that. 
Well, certainly there may be some in the community who are able to, to look and see us. What I also am convinced is that we, those of us who were able to serve in that time, we saw those folks differently. We began to see more and more of them as Jesus saw them. There is no question that when people look at ZPC and at the people uh, who go to ZPC, they will see us and our pastors, um, at least I'll speak for myself, as imperfect, as struggling, and blemished. But I think rather than spending too much time apologizing for that or trying to deny it, we should actually see that as an invitation as an invitation for them, for all of those who are also imperfect and blemished, which is everyone, as an invitation to come here and to be a part of who we are. Which is not a perfect people, but a people who serve a remarkable God. And through acts of stretching love, through acts of hospitality, through acts of service, we are, in a steady and a stable and a remarkably plodding way, we begin to see Jesus more and more with those that we meet as we continue to do those things. And someday, when Jesus returns, we will finally see no longer, as Paul says, through a glass darkly, but we will see each other just as Christ sees one another. And that is a day for which we will be full of joy and celebration. And so might we live in such a way even now. Hallelujah. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. God, we acknowledge that we are not always easy to love. That we are not perfect. That we are not this utopia of a community. But what that also means, Lord, is that we can actually be a part of this community. What it also does, Lord, is it points to you. It points to who you are. It points to your grace and your love. And so we pray, Lord, that in those times when we acknowledge our own imperfections, our own struggles, that we confess those things and that we are reminded that you are a God full of love and grace. We pray all of these things in your name. Amen.